Good morning, church. If you could pull your Bibles out to Romans chapter 3. We're in uh, Romans 3, verses 23 through 24. To Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The word of God. Jacob, thanks for getting our attention with the Word of God. Appreciate that. Lauren, Pastor Josh, man, what a great song. So good. Let's pray and and ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word this morning. Lord, as the song that we just sung says, when our knees hit the ground, we touch the sky. Lord, we bow before you and we reach out to you. We come before you, giving you our worship, our praise, our adoration, our awe. We come here asking for you as a father to instruct us as your children. And I humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to speak through me, that I might be a channel through which Jesus Christ is glorified and our lives are challenged, and we're challenged to live more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to minister to those who listen to the podcasts and online who are deployed. You minister to them in their souls and their hearts, their emotions. May they know we're praying for them, and may you bring them back safely to us. May you bless the families during times of separation. May you bless our students away. May they listen to your word and your spirit rather than the teachings of the world. Those that are fighting illnesses, Lord, and maybe even too sick to be here, we pray you'd minister health to them emotionally, physically, spiritually, and physically. Lord, we ask now for you to speak. Open our ears, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, we ask all these things. Amen. Perhaps one of the clearest and strongest arguments against the modern theory of evolution that you're a product of random chance and spontaneous generation and not a product of special creation by a creator, as the Bible teaches. Perhaps one of the greatest arguments against that is the ubiquitous phrase heard in every culture, heard throughout history, heard from every person once they can speak. It is the phrase, it's not fair. It's not fair. Give something good to one of your children and deprive the other child, and guess what you're going to hear? It's not fair. Or where you work, suppose a promotion is about to happen, and there's you and that other person, and you're definitely a better worker. You're on time. You produce more you're more faithful, you're more supportive, and they get promoted. When you go home, guess what you're going to say to your spouse or your roommate or your parents? It's not fair. When I was in seminary, I remember my very first class was a class everybody had to take. It was a speech class, and you just had to get it out of the way, and it wasn't very hard, and I had a 96 in it, and I got my grade for the class, and it was a B. A 96% was a B. 
and I had a 4.0 for all my other classes, my first semester in seminary. And I get a B in speech? So I go to the professor. And guess what I said? Praise the Lord! No, I said, it's not fair. Didn't change my grade. Apparently there were way too many A's in that class, and so I got a B. I still don't think it's fair. That's why I'm preaching this sermon. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, a non-Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, a Muslim, an anarchist, a Taoist, or a Jew, or you started your own religion that I didn't mention. Regardless of religious bent, all of mankind believes in the concept of fairness. Where did that come from? There's only one rational explanation. There might be others, but there's only one rational one. And that's that you were created in the image of God. That God placed his idea and his concept, the feeling, the knowledge, the perception of fairness in you and in me. You have an outline in the bulletin. You'll find it helpful if you want to take it out. First thing there, number one, for us to think about is that your desire for fairness, your desire for fairness is the image of God in you. It's the image of God in you because God is fair. And when he created us, he put his image in us, and that's not a physical image. God is not corporeal. He's not physical. He put his characteristics in us. And one of those characteristics in the image of God is the desire for things to be just and to be fair. And God put it in us. Romans chapter 2 speaks to this. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app on your phone, you might want to turn there. Romans 2, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. It says in verse 14, For when Gentiles, that refers to the non-Jew, in this case, probably pagan believers. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, and the law there is God's written instruction on what is right and wrong. The Holy Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, now that we have the New Testament. So when these pagans who do not have God's written rules do instinctively the things of the law, instinctively they follow the rules. These not having the law, God's rules, are a law to themselves. In that they show the works of the law, God's right and wrong, written in their hearts. God put the idea of right and wrong in the hearts of everyone, believer and unbeliever. Their conscience bearing witness. What is a conscience? A conscience is the image of God in you. And when you go against that conscience or when you sear that conscience, you're going against the image of God that has been placed in you. Your desire for fairness is the image of God in you. Both believer and unbeliever have moral consciences. We could call this a moral compass that guides us. We all have the sense of right and wrong because God placed it in us. It's the image of God in us. 
when you declare it's not fair, you are also declaring that there is a moral creator that holds us responsible. Because that's where we got this idea of justice and fairness. You might remember (coughs) the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah were twin cities that God looked down and he was going to destroy them because, and I quote God himself, their sin is exceedingly grave. But Abraham, the first Jew, the father of the Jews, was told this by angels that came to him. And he's thinking, well, it's not fair to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah when they're righteous people who live there. So he goes in this little banter with God. And if there's so many people, will you destroy it? No. If there's so many people, no. And the reason he's doing this largely is because his nephew Lot lives there with his family. And Abraham has an inherent desire for God to be just. And so he says to God, far be it from you, God, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Well, of course God will deal justly. And God being just, proceeded to deal justly with Sodom and Gomorrah where there were not the number of ten righteous people that Abraham thought there would be. You see, God does not live up to some external standard of justice. God is the standard. God doesn't have to say, is this fair? If God does it, it is fair. He cannot act outside his nature of justice and fairness. So if God does it, it is fair. And God puts that image in us, so we also want things to be fair. But we have a problem. We live in a sinful world, and that affects what we think is fair. Today, as we continue in our series on encountering Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus encounters injustice. He encounters injustice. One of the ironies of all ironies is that Jesus, God, is the essence of all that is fair. He is the essence of all that is just and right. And yet he subjected himself to the greatest injustice that has ever occurred. He allowed himself to be betrayed by a friend. That's an injustice. He allowed himself to be mocked. That's unfair. He allowed himself to be falsely accused and murdered by his own creatures. The height of injustice. And Jesus willingly endured this injustice so that he could pay the price of all injustices. So he could pay the price for everything that's unfair. So that the God of fairness could bear on him the unfairness that all of us have perpetrated or experienced. And by doing so, he opened up the way for us to someday enter a world that is recreated and where everything is fair. A world where you and I can live, and when we see an event 
or we hear something that happened, we're going to declare, that's fair. (laughs) The world will be fair. In fact, it will be the best world's fair there has ever been. Jesus' encounter with injustice and his response to it is encapsulated in one short sentence in Luke chapter 23. As we prepare for communion today, as we prepare for the Easter season, this is an important thing for us to reflect on. From the cross, Jesus gave seven statements. We call them the seven words of Christ from the cross. We have seven young people who will be sharing from those on Good Friday. I think you'll be blessed if you come and hear what they have to share. But this morning, I want to share on just one of those statements from the cross. It's Luke 23, verse 34. And on the cross, Jesus was saying. That word was saying is in a tense that means he continually was saying. He didn't just say it once. He said it over and over again. It's a prayer. And he was saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If ever there was a time to cry out, it's not fair, this was it. This was the most unfair thing that has ever occurred in human history. The unfair crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who has never done anything wrong. But Jesus didn't cry out, it's not fair. Instead, he cried out, they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they are doing. They had turned wrong into right. They had turned right into wrong. Every one of us, as I said, has a moral compass, a strong belief in right and wrong, but that compass is damaged by sin. It's like there's this magnet by the compass, and it spins it around, and we're confused, and we're going the wrong direction, and we don't even realize it. We think right is wrong, and wrong is right. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this in verses 17 to 19. I'd like to read it in the New Living Translation. It's a paraphrase. So unless you have that, you might want to just listen. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, Paul writes this. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles, the unbelievers do. And listen to how he puts it. For they are hopelessly confused. Hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Hopelessly confused, full of darkness, wander far, close their minds, harden their hearts, no sense of shame. Or as Jesus put it more succinctly, they do not know what they are doing. Think about it. People who passionately support Abortion. People who passionately support same-sex marriage believe that what they are supporting is right. They believe in right and wrong. They have morality. They have a moral compass. 
but they're hopelessly confused. That compass is off. Think about conservative believers. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were the very conservative, right-wing religious believers. And they were hopelessly confused. We can be that way. We can think it's right to be judgmental when we should be merciful. We might think it's okay to be condescending when we should be sympathetic. We might think it's okay to be self-righteous when God has called us to be humble. We don't know what we're doing. The conservative right of Jesus' day did the worst thing possible, thinking it was the best thing. They murdered Jesus Christ. And these religious conservatives did it based on what they thought the Scriptures said. They were hopelessly confused. Their moral compass was off. They killed the Son of God in the name of God. They didn't know what they were doing. And yet it was wrong and they were guilty. Number two in your outline. Your ignorance does not exempt you from guilt. Your ignorance does not exempt you from guilt. Jesus says, forgive them. That means they're guilty. They don't know what they're doing. That means they're ignorant. And ignorance does not exempt you of guilt. In the book of Leviticus, way back in the beginning of your Bibles, chapter 5, Leviticus is one of those books that might be hard to get through when you're doing the read-through-the-Bible thing. It has a lot of offerings, a lot of sacrifices. It's an important book. In Leviticus chapter 5, we discover there's an offering for things you didn't know you did wrong. But you're still guilty. Leviticus 5, verse 17. Verse 17, Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done... Though he was unaware, though he did not know it, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. So apparently once you find out that you did something wrong, you didn't know it was wrong, and you discover, it says, Then he is to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error, which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it. And it shall be forgiven him. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Verse 19, it is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Ignorance of God's law is no excuse. And you're going, oh, great. I've sinned more than I thought. Yes, you have. (laughs) I'm worse than I thought I was. Yes, you are. And so am I. You see, our actions aren't wrong because we think they're wrong. Our actions are wrong 
Because God thinks they're wrong when they're wrong. God is the one who decides what's right or wrong, not us. Crucifying Jesus was wrong no matter how right it felt to the people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They thought that felt right. No matter how loudly the world around us shouts that something is right, that doesn't make it right. What makes it right is that God says it's right. What makes it wrong is that God says it's wrong. It's his moral compass that we are to follow. Your ignorance does not exempt you from guilt. I was at a friend's house for dinner, nice dinner. She made a nice dinner. We're talking. I said something. I offended her. I didn't know I'd offended her. I didn't know it was offensive. I didn't mean to offend her, but she called me on it. I was guilty. I was wrong. I hurt her. I didn't mean to. I wouldn't even have known it if she hadn't told me. So I could confess it and be forgiven. We may be more guilty than we thought, but fortunately, Jesus didn't just say they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said, forgive them. I recently listened to an excellent sermon online given by Rebecca Stringer. You might remember her. She's a friend of ours, former staff member here. She now is an associate pastor at a church on the other side of the island. And she was actually preaching on this passage in Luke, on Jesus from the cross. And she asked two very insightful questions that I had never pondered before. Maybe you hadn't either. When Jesus says, forgive them, one question is, Who is them that he's referring to? Who is them? Well, I think, well, the guy with the hammer, of course. Well, the Pharisees, of course. Or Judas, of course. Well, where do you stop? Forgive his disciples who didn't stand up and say, stop? Does it include the whole crowd there that's cheering them on? Who is them? I know that's bad English, but who is the them? Well, that's a good question. And then, forgive. Forgive them for what? You're going, well, for the crucifixion, of course. Well, is that all? Aren't there other things that went on there? Lying and betrayal and false trials and blasphemy. And, well, yeah, I forgot about that part. And and it goes on and on. So you start thinking, who is them? Well, I would present to you number three in your outline there. Them is everyone. Them is everyone. Them is you and me. When he says forgive them, he's talking about everyone, you and me, because our sins put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't just a man with a hammer. It was our sins that put him there. Your sins, my sins. He's on the cross because of you and me. We helped crucify him. And so when he says forgive them, Certainly, he's including the guy with the hammer. Certainly, he's including the Pharisees and Pilate and everyone else. But that prayer travels through the quarters of time and includes you and includes me and includes our sins. And Jesus says, forgive everyone. Forgive you and me. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Well, forgive us for what? The crucifixion? Certainly. But more than that, number four on the outline. Forgive everything. Forgive everything. Because every sin of yours and mine is responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. Every one of them. When you suddenly realize that your moral compass has been off, when you suddenly realize that you've offended God more than you thought, when you suddenly realize that Jesus Christ bore all of that for you, it should drive you to your knees. In humble appreciation that He forgives everyone for everything. He forgives you for everything. And while you're on your knees, you're probably going to think to yourself, well, that doesn't seem fair. That Jesus would have to die for my sins. That thou, my God, shouldst die for me, as we sang. Merciful? Yes. An act of grace? Absolutely. But fair? How can it be fair? Undeserved? Yes. Appreciated? So very much. But fair? How is it fair that Jesus paid for your sins and mine? As I worked in the sermon, I thought, well, what's the answer? I decided I better look up the word fair. The word fair, according to the dictionary, means in accordance with the rules. And then I realized something. God made the rules. Your sin has to be paid for. Someone has to die because of your sins. That's the rule. And the other rule is, someone can take your place. And Jesus said, I'll do it. I will take your place. And that's fair. It's by the rules. And it's so merciful. And we should be so grateful. Fair, yes, but extremely costly. And Jesus paid the price. <laughs> and Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And the Father does. And that's grace. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads. <clears throat> so you can have a moment as the people who are serving communion prepare the table for us. Perhaps you're here and you've never made what Christ did on the cross personal. You've never thanked Him for dying for you. You've never accepted Him as your Savior from sin.
You do that by an act of your will. And if you're here and you've never done that, you can just cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the grave. And I say thank you for doing it for me. Christian, as we pray, let's prepare our hearts. Let's give God our praise, our gratefulness. Ask for forgiveness for even the unknown. Let's take a quiet moment in prayer. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take, eat. And Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink, every one of you. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your mercy to us. We love you, Lord. Amen. From Numbers chapter 6, 24 through verses 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, and I will see you soon.